Hey everybody and welcome to Asked and Answered, the podcast where I answer questions no one's asking. It's 1756 and you live in western New York, which is the frontier. It's the height of the French and Indian War, which the British call the Seven Years' War. And the British have a significant issue, which is that as the front moves and combat moves, they don't have barracks in order to house the British army that has has come to fight the French and the Indians. And so, as a citizen of Western New York, one day you wake up and find that uh, you go outside and there's a British regular who's camped in your yard and has come to inform you that he will be moving in with you. And there's not much you can say about it because of the quartering laws, which say that you have to house and feed and mend his clothes and provide his, his necessaries uh, for any equipment that's not that doesn't carry on his person. The way the compensation at the time was supposed to work was that you could receive reimbursement from the colony who paid for the upkeep of the soldier who was quartered in your house. And in most cases, the soldiers uh, were kept in, in auxiliary properties. So they were kept in either the barns or the any kind of shed or any, any space that was available. But in a fair number of cases, they were in private people's homes, living with their families. Uh, as you can imagine, this called, caused a lot of uh, stress, and most people were very resistant to the idea. Once the war ended in 1763, France was ousted from the North American continent. But the British government, for the first time in colonial history, believed that it was still necessary to maintain a standing army in the, in the, territory, in the colonies. The Quartering Act, which allowed the ostensibly the soldiers to be permitted by law to be quartered in people's houses, to be housed in people's houses, expired in 1765. And so Parliament passed a new uh, Quartering Act, which set down regulations for housing soldiers in the American colonies during a time of peace. This was a very far leap from what people were used to. People would tolerate housing soldiers in time of war because of necessity of defense. But this was a peacetime, and the colonists were supposed to provide barracks for soldiers, and if they weren't available, then the troops were to be builded in inns and stables and alehouses. But if these were insufficient, then the governors and councils of the provinces were authorized to use uninhabited houses, barns, and other buildings. But finally, if nowhere else was available, then the colonists were required to provide housing within their own homes, even if occupied. And they had to do things like provide firewood, bedding, food, beer, mend their clothing, things like that. And the colonies, particularly New York, really objected to this act, especially as it obliged them to raise money to support the soldiers without the consent of the provincial legislatures. Tensions over the presence of British soldiers in, in the colonies uh, increased rapidly. And in 1768, Troops were deployed to Boston to assist law enforcement in a colony that seethed with resentment against the British authority. And Bostonians became convinced that this standing army quartered among them in a time of peace was in violation of their English rights and was designed to overwhelm them with military force and quell any kind of action that might occur. There were 4,000 redcoats that were housed in the town of 15,000 people. And so as we know, it was only a matter of time before an incident occurred. And, and on March 5th, 1770, uh, 
several British soldiers fired upon a hostile crowd, killing five civilians in what became known as the Boston Massacre. In the eyes of the British government, Boston seemed to be a hotbed of activity for rebellion. And in, when the Boston Tea Party happened in December of 1773, uh, which is where patriots threw, in today's dollars, about $2 million worth of tea into the Boston Harbor, uh, we can talk about it in another, another episode why that was a significant act, but it was more than just the money. Um, this confirmed really to Parliament that there, there would needed to be some serious controls on the colonies, and so they passed the Coercive Acts or the Intolerable Acts, among which was one called the New Quartering Act. So the New Quartering Act, which was approved in June of 1774, doubled down on this notion that troops could be housed in private homes as opposed to private buildings. And the colonists regarded this Quartering Act as even more offensive than its 1765 predecessor, and they labeled it one of the intolerable acts. Parliament's response to the Boston Tea Party triggered a series of political statements uh, that addressed the quartering issue, which ultimately culminated in the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The First Continental Congress complained of this latest quartering act in its declaration and resolves of 1774 and called for a repeal of the act. And in 1775, the declarations of causes and necessity of taking up arms also cited the 1774 statute passed for the quartering of soldiers upon the colonists in a time of profound peace. And then finally, the Declaration of Independence justified breaking the political bands that had bound the colonists to England by explaining that George III had combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Those opposing revolution also raised the specter of quartering. Um, Pennsylvania, uh, Joseph, a guy from Pennsylvania named Joseph Galloway tried to dissuade his countrymen from rebellion by warning that the American army would prove too undisciplined, traveling over your estates, entering your houses and castles and seizing your property, and afterwards plunging a dagger into the tender bosoms of your wives and daughters. Galloway was correct in some part. The American forces did quarter troops on civilians during the Revolutionary War, as did the British, um, but he seemed to over-exaggerate the threat. Um, by and large, discipline was as good in the American patriots, among the American patriots, as it was in the British regulars, as far as the way they treated their hosts, primarily because they felt as, as though these people were their, their comrades, right? Um, American mil military leaders, leaders held an aversion to quartering um, throughout uh, the, the time period, and so they really tried to avoid it if they could by building barracks and using public buildings and trying to avoid towns as much as possible. What little American quartering there was occurred really early in the war before the state's legislatures had made any other provisions for housing troops, but by the end of the, by the end of the war, Delaware, Maryland, Massachusetts had declared the rights of protection from the citizens of unchecked building. And Delaware's quartering provision set the pattern for the other states. And it said, no soldier ought to be quartered in any house in a time of peace without the consent of the owner and in a time of war in such manner only as the legislature shall direct. All these states uh, applied the uniquely American sort of dual standard of 
one rule for war, one war, one rule for peace. Um, and that sort of laid the foundation for what became the Third Amendment. Um, so many of the revolutionary state constitutions drafted in 1776 and 1777 included provisions that warned of the dangers of standing armies in peacetime. So there's a sort of an, an extra component of this, which is that the early American nation had a very strong aversion of standing armies in general and housing of soldiers in particular because of the violation of their privacy, their, 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 their home. Um, for example, the Virginia Bill of Rights of 1776 said that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. And some state constitutions also affirmed, just like the Delaware Declaration of Rights, that no soldiers ought to be quartered in any house during time of peace, you know, and only in time of war, whenever the legislature specifically declares that there's a war at foot, afoot and also tells us what the rules of the quartering should be. So it shouldn't be any surprise that when the new federal com Congress came to write the Third Amendment of the Constitution in 1789, there was some pretty significant precedent to rely on, and there was nothing new about the Third Amendment. It's just sort of declared what had already become American conventional wisdom. And so what became the Third Amendment was no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner prescribed by law. So one of the reasons that the Third Amendment is, is sort of considered the most overlooked amendment in the Bill of Rights is because it's never served as the basis for a major Supreme Court decision. It's been cited, uh, including most recently as in Griswold v. Connecticut, as one of the elements that provides for the right to privacy within the Constitution. but it's never been the primary justification for any kind of Supreme Court precedent. What shouldn't surprise you is that, like many other bill, each of the Bill of Rights amendments, the United States government has violated the Third Amendment, both in the War of 1812 and in the Civil War and in other times. Um, in the War of 1812, for example, although the U.S. had officially declared war against England, it didn't lay down the laws regulating the quartering of troops. Yet troops were quartered in U.S. homes. The Civil War ushered in another plague of forced quartering. Um, for example, in an account given of the Union's invasion of Virginia's eastern shore showed its prevalence. The Union's occupying force was better received and more friendly to most of their captors than and the other during the war, yet even here, uh, the Army quartered troops on local civilians. You could look at Texas v. White and arguing that citizens of Virginia and, and the other rebel states did not deserve the Third Amendment's protections. The Supreme Court held that during the, this condition of civil war, the rights of the state as a member and of her people as citizens of the Union were suspended. This is a very controversial claim. But even if we accept it, it does nothing to excuse the quartering of troops on citizens of the loyal states. Apparently such quartering did take place. Not only are there specific reports of troops having been quartered in Union territory, but the Secretary of War alluded to having seized homes of loyal citizens to use as barracks. The practice grew so common that the military developed 
a sophisticated system for reviewing claims for rent of houses seized and occupied by the military authorities and loyal states during the rebellion. How much did quartering did Union citizens endure? The Committee on War Claims estimated that $500,000 in claims for rent and damage to real estate came from loyal states following the Civil War. $2.5 million in claims came from rebel states. This is really just a small portion of the actual damages. For many of these claims were test cases designed to determine whether Congress would pay them. Um, the committee estimated that very many millions of further such claims would be would surface if con Congress offered to compensate for rent and damage to real estate, and of course it, de it declined to do so. So one way or another, quartering Union troops in loyal states probably offended the Third Amendment. But the real interesting question is how did it do so? So as long as it remains unclear whether there existed a state of war sufficient to trigger the Third Amendment's second clause, we can't really be sure which part of the Third Amendment such quartering violated. And because Congress never officially declared war on the Confederate states, it regarded the conflict as a response to insurrection rather than the conquest of a sovereign nation, then we might be able to conclude that the Civil War was a time of peace so far as the Third Amendment is concerned. But if so, then the quartering of troops in loyal states violated the first clause of the Third Amendment, that no soldier shall in a time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. Then on the other hand, if, if we agree with the Committee on War Claims that the insurrection was a de facto state of war that gave the U.S. government the same rights and powers which they'd exercise in, in the case of a national or foreign war, then the second clause, which is that in a manner to be prescribed by law, was violated. But in any case, Congress didn't act and, and it never got litigated in such a way that it went to some kind of conclusive argument one way or the other. In March of 2015, a University of Tennessee law professor um, took, took this pro-Third Amendment argument and said, the Third Amendment can no longer be the Forgotten Amendment if it's considered to interlock with the Fourth Amendment to provide a check on some domestic mass surveillance intruding on civil life, particularly within the home, business, or curtilage of each. In the digital era, the dual purpose of the amendment should be understood to potentially limit the reach of cyber soldiers and protect the enjoyment of a private tenancy without governmental in incursion. Um, so my opinion on this is that it's that's totally illogical. That that's not that's a that's a bridge too far for expanding the meaning of the Third Amendment um, to cover NSA spying, whether domestic or or in any other capacity. Um, sure, the, the argument could be made that soldiers are. That, that, that rather the employees of the National Security Agency are soldiers under the definition, but I think where it fails is, is in the housing of, right? That fundamental element of the, of the amendment and its interpretation is that there has to be physical housing. And while it's a creative and perhaps interesting way of approaching the issue, ultimately I think it fails for a variety of reasons. Um, so, you know, while there's no recent precedent or cases on the Third Amendment. It remains one of the artifacts of history that has some really significant underpinnings, and I think it's fascinating. And until next time, thanks for listening.